Our liberties we prize. Our rights we will maintain. We know that's what we say. But is that what we do? Oh. Reka, we have our first episode of What the Hell Happened to Iowa in the books, and now we are starting episode two. So what was your experience of putting together the first one? Oh my, I would say there's a high learning curve. You think it's all done so seamlessly and you can just sit down and do it in one take. No such luck. And that's on top of the travel and the recordings and the mixings and the music and the transitions and all of that. So there's a bit to be learned about it, but I was delighted by how it came out, thanks in large part to our lovely producer here, James, James Hamilton, Hamilton, who does so well with the sound engineering. And we have some incredible speakers for this one, some great interviewees with real in-school insights into what's going to happen if they try to privatize education in Iowa, as they are doing. And some of them speak with great passion and great understanding of what all is at stake. I think as I look back on the experience of putting together the first podcast and then listening to it, what I really appreciate about this format, the podcast format, is that people can hear the voices, Mm -hmm. hear the emotion, Mm -hmm. not just read about the policies and the bills, Mm -hmm. but can actually hear what it sounds like for a school superintendent to break down and cry. This is so true, Julie. And when we were talking with Stacy Cole, she said she educated me on so many facets of schooling, public school education in Iowa. She just did it so smoothly. I think these are things that most people don't really get a chance to hear about or even read about what it is like being the manager of a public school district, the most multicultural, diverse one in the state. We introduced ourselves to people just randomly, and folks were very open about their feelings about all kinds of issues, and it was it was fascinating. It also begs the question, then, how did these lawmakers get elected? Because those were their platforms, right, to privatize education. What were people thinking when they voted for them? Obviously about something else. Well, future issues of this podcast, we're going to be talking about some of those reasons, I think. What the hell happened to Iowa? Dark money into advertising is a big reason. And media. And media, all of which we'll we'll be talking about. And in fact, I'd like to introduce a clip now from State Senator Pam Yoakum, who has spoken quite eloquently and authentically from the perspective of a mother who raised a severely disabled child. This bill does absolutely nothing to fund the $144 million special ed deficit in the state. Nothing. This bill does nothing to expand educational opportunities for four-year-olds in the state or to meet the mental health needs of kids in our school system. It does nothing. We are actually paying to discriminate against some children. Shame on us. Wow. In our first podcast, we shared our alarm about the overall direction in which our leaders are taking the state. This week, we're taking a closer look at the outlook for education under the privatization law recently signed by the governor 
and other school-related bills that have been introduced in recent weeks. In addition to a sit-down interview with Senator Yoakum for today's podcast, we spoke to a variety of educators. Stacy Cole, the superintendent of Storm Lake Schools, Barb Adams, principal of Finley Elementary School in Des Moines, Joy Lindquist, a high school associate principal and previously a middle school principal in Des Moines, and Sandra Abbott, a language arts teacher at a West Des Moines alternative high school. We also got candid, off-the-cuff reflections on the voucher law and other bills from a couple of women we met randomly in Jefferson and Pocahontas. All of them gave a real different context to the claims and justifications thrown about by Iowa's politicians and a real-life view from inside their schools. Here they are. We are here in Storm Lake. And we're speaking with Dr. Stacy Cole, who is the superintendent of the Storm Lake School District. Welcome so much to our podcast, Stacy. We're Thank so you. honored to have you be our first guest. Thank you. And one of the things we want to talk to you about today is what would you like people to understand about the ramifications of the voucher bill? And not just the general public, but also legislators, for example. So we are still fairly uncertain about what this is going to mean for us locally. I have a feeling that in some parts of the state, it's going to mean more than it means to us in Storm Lake, and in some parts of the state, it's going to mean less, right? And so we're still waiting to see what the impact is. We've tried extremely hard in the past to have a really solid relationship with our private school partners. So I have almost always been in a school district that has at least one private school within the boundaries, and it has always been the goal of all of the districts that I've worked with to be very good partners. And so what I mean by that is if a student wants to take a specialized math course that we offer, but our private school partners are unable to offer that course, we've always opened our doors and said, come in, we will allow that, we want to be good partners. So for us here, I think the part that I I think I would say is the most disappointing right now is the separation between the community because we've got kids that attend the private school. We have kids that attend our school and we've always tried to recognize, and I still would say this is true, like there's not a school in the country that can be the school for everyone. We all have different gifts. We all have different superhero skills, and we try (laughs) to really match those to the students that we serve. So in our district, it's no secret, we are the most diverse school district in the state, I believe. And when open enrollment opened up a year ago, I had some wonderings. What will happen? Will we see more kids leave? You know, what will we see? And we actually saw more kids come into our boundaries with the opening of open enrollment. I think a lot of the students that come to us are kids who recognize that while we are not anywhere near close to perfect, we really try to honor who our kids are and help them feel welcome regardless of their circumstances that they have in life. And so we saw some kids come into our district that maybe were seeking that out. With the ESAs, I don't know what that's going to mean. 
pausing for a second to clarify that ESA stands for Educational Savings Account, which is otherwise known as vouchers. I don't know if that means that we'll see more kids try our private school partners. The hardest part for us is the line in the sand that it feels like it draws. So up until now, we've tried to be very collaborative in nature. We already provide many services for our private school partners that I don't know that the general public understands. There are lots of federal dollars that flow through public schools to make their way to our private school partners. There are state dollars already that flow through. So in our particular community, preschool would be a good example of state dollars that flow through to our private partners. So for a while, we had multiple preschool private partners, and currently we have only St. Mary's in town that receives state dollars to to run their preschool. In our public school system, we provide that service free of charge. We're provided funding for half-day funding for preschool in Iowa. As a school district, we have chosen to make it work with that half-day funding to provide a full-day option for all of our families. We feel that consistency through the day is the right option for most of our families, so we provide that. St. Mary's provides a full-day option as well. They do charge for the second half of their day. We're never sure if everyone understands that they get the same funding that we get, but they're charging for the other half of the day, and we choose not to charge for half of the day. I worry about the partnerships moving forward. We've had a very solid partnership up until this time, and now it feels like we are in competition. And so we all know that changes things, right? We've all had school rivals when we were growing up. And so what once felt like a partner now feels a little bit more like a rival, and it worries me just for our community. Our community is a close-knit community who has really seen the value of the two organizations in one where we both could fill a different need. And now I feel like we're competing for the same dollars, which will feel much less like a partnership moving forward. How many K-12 through private schools are there in the area? We have just one that most of our students attend. And that is a parochial school. It's a Christian school. So how do you think it will impact those students in the school district because you are such a multicultural school district who are not Christian, who don't identify as Christian? Will they have an equal opportunity to get a private school education under this bill? I'm not sure. We've talked about that quite a bit. We know that during church, families have been encouraged to seek out vouchers and to choose the local Christian school option that is here and available. I don't know what that means for kids who don't identify as Christian. We do have a number of religions in our community. One of the concerns we hear is that private schools don't have to accept students that they don't want to accept. Is that a concern you have? That is a very big concern that I have. We work really hard to serve every kid that walks through our door. No matter what school you're talking about, kids have a lot of challenges today. And say what you will about whether schools should have been closed or not closed or all of the different opinions that are out there. The reality is that regardless of how a school navigated that very tough time, in our recent history, kids struggled to get through mm -hmm. that. And so no matter what the school's reaction was to how school was done when kids came back, 
the kids definitely are different now than they were four or five years ago. For instance, in our early elementary school, we're seeing kids with behaviors that we normally would see in like a three-year-old classroom. We see a lot more tantrums, a lot more dysregulation of kids who are older than we would normally expect to see that behavior from. So we know that when we get a student that is highly dysregulated, needs a lot of extra support, we know what we have to do is dig in and figure out the cause of that behavior and try to put every intervention in possible to help them be successful. We also know our private school partners will not be expected to do that. And if it gets to be too much, um, as it has always been the case, when it is too much for our private school partners, they can, as I call it, tap out and send a student back to us. If it looks like a kid isn't going to graduate because they don't have enough graduation credits to meet requirements, private schools can say, nope, you're not going to go here anymore and you're going to go back to your public partner. So we've seen that across the state. We've seen private schools really highlight their ability to have a 100% graduation rate while we know that kids are leaving those schools and returning to their public schools when they haven't been able to meet the four-year graduation rates. On the flip side of that, are you concerned that some families will choose to pull their students out of private schools because of behavioral issues that are developing with other kids there around? I mean, out of public schools, excuse me, and put them in private schools. That's always been an option. So while it'll be a bigger option now because, because the funding will come with, with it, them. yeah. Um, I think one of the things that it will be up to us to talk about is how even when there are students with behaviors, all of us get to be better humans when we learn how to navigate that. So I don't know about anyone else's social media feed, but mine would indicate that we need to learn how to get along as a society a little bit better. And so, yes, I would say, yes, I do think we will see some families just say, I don't want my child exposed to that. And I think as we have in history, we'll see families that say, I understand that child is going through something that my own child didn't go through. And it's probably okay for my child to think about how do they support that child. superintendent here now for five years, we've had one parent complain about rights of transgender students. And that was a bathroom complaint. And that student was offered a gender neutral bathroom. So we've had one in five years. And we do get complaints about books periodically. I think we've had one complaint in five years. But prior to that, we used to get some more complaints. Generally speaking, we'd have other offerings for kids. In the last five years, we've had one complaint, like formal complaint about a book. And it was really 
the theory through which the teacher was looking at the book. But even in that case, there were actually five theories that the teacher was using to look at that book through. And I believe the student could choose which of the theories. And the parent was upset because one did deal with gender issues. And so when we asked, are you not okay with any of the five? That wasn't the case. It was really that he didn't want any kid looking through the lens that he didn't want his kid looking through. I believe that is the right of other parents to look through, you know, that if I choose for my kid to look through that lens, I should be able to, and he doesn't have to have his kid look through that lens. When we talk about choice, I believe that choice should be available for everyone. If you want your child to read The Hate You Give, you should be able to have your child read The Hate You Give. And if someone else doesn't want their child to read that, they should be able to say, no, I'm not interested in that. How worried are you about the ultimate loss of funding for public schools if enough people decide to make the switch to private schools, especially given the fact that they'll be receiving something like $7,600 per pupil per year to do that, and that money is going to come out of the state treasury? If someone believes that the private school in our community is the better option for them, I want them to go there. I want kids to go to the school best fits their needs. So... Tell a legislator who might be listening to this what you would like them to know. That's a good question. The first thing I would want them to know is the vast majority of teachers are in school buildings doing the best they can helping kids. And they come every day, despite really difficult circumstances right now. They love the kids of Iowa. They provide with them hope that not all of our kids walk in the doors with. They teach the heck out of core content. And they do things that I didn't know we could do 20 years ago. And sometimes I feel like We have some folks that are reacting and making policy about those of us who aren't making the good decisions. Who it's really harming is those of us that are out here working hard, trying to help kids and families and trying to do our best. And that doesn't mean that I don't believe that we should be regulated. Of course we should be regulated. And of course, families should have the right to come in and talk with us and ask us to do right by their kids all of us collectively. When you talk with other superintendents, which I assume you do, (laughs) yes. what's the conversation? What's the buzz? That's a good question. The buzz is that it's just not really very much fun right now. It's been hard. I am not going to lie about that at all. I believe there is a reason that we are seeing a lack of candidates coming to the pool for teachers. And if anyone's watching the pool of candidates that are coming for leaders, it continues to deteriorate as well. So the buzz is that some of us wonder why we chose to do what we're doing, because it's harder than any of us probably could have imagined 20, 25 years ago. People are always angry. They are always looking for the conspiracy theory behind the decisions that you make. 
They're always wondering what's the real story. People lack trust right now, and they take almost nothing for face value. And having to constantly defend and talk about all the things behind decisions gets tiring. We spend a lot of time trying to help families get insurance for their kids so they can take care of their basic needs. Are they able to see the board in the room? Can they hear? Are their teeth in a healthy place where they're not in pain all day long? So we were talking to some local healthcare providers about this. Did we need something on site that would allow things to happen more quickly? And I remember one of the doctors in the room said to me, Stacy, do you want to be a health clinic? And it had been a tough day in the district. And I broke down in tears and I said no. So, Julie, there was a lot to unpack there in Dr. Cole's words and a lot that I think was very eye-opening. What are your, some of your biggest takeaways? I wish every person in Iowa could have heard what Stacy Cole had to say. And if not every person in Iowa, then I wish every legislator and the governor of the state could hear what the ramifications of their actions are doing to hardworking, caring, professional educators. It is so true. And you know what I picked up from her, some of her stories and her narrative was this kind of demonization that has taken place of schools, of public schools and teachers and administrators that they are facing every day, this grand conspiracy theory that they're trying to expose children to something that parents wouldn't want them to hear when, as she said, they've only had one complaint in the five years that she's been there as superintendent about a book and only one complaint about bathroom use, and they managed to find a resolution with having a non-gendered bathroom that a student could use. Rekha, this just underscores to me the belief I came in here with, and that is this is a cynical, political wedge issue that is funded by dark money to create tensions and anger and hostility and fear. That's absolutely right, Julie. And look at the impact that it's having on these teachers and on these superintendents. She breaks down in tears sometimes. There is so much for her to manage. I think what is so cynical of these legislators is they don't go into schools. They don't really investigate what's being taught or what's happening. They just talk rubbish about it as if they know. And it's all speculative. These people have their hearts and minds in that place. She said, I want every child to feel loved every day. And if they don't, I want them to come and talk to me. Right. That's powerful stuff. 
And again, I'm going to go back to the point I just made, and that is these talking points are coming out of national think tanks, and they're being spread all around the country, and they have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with what is actually going on in Iowa public schools. And the sad thing is, because of this legislation, there are going to be towns and communities in Iowa that will eventually lose their public school because they won't have the funding to keep the doors open. And then, when the state runs out of money, what in the heck are we going to do? So a couple of specific takeaways that came from her talk. I think one was about preschool funding, right? Right. That the state gives preschool funding to both private and public schools to have half-day preschools. And then in the case of the private schools, they, or at least in her district, they provided the other half-day funding at a cost to parents, whereas in her school district, the public school district, they provided it to every family for free. So both are taking advantage of, or at least the private schools are taking advantage of public money, but they're charging people also, whereas the mission of a public school district is to provide the very best to students for free. So it's so cynical to take money away from them and give it to the private schools. I think she made a point that is worth underscoring, and that is, in the past, the public school administrators and the private school administrators have had a collaborative effort with the end goal being the student. When the public schools are going to be shortchanged financially to benefit the private schools, then enters a level of competition as opposed to collaboration. And there are no winners. Exactly. And the form that collaboration took was if a private school student wanted something like band or arts or whatever that was not available in the private school, they could go to the public school for free and get that, right? Right. They were sharing their resources. Now, she said, it's like we're rivals. We've been made into rivals. What's your takeaway from going to Storm Lake, Rekha. How do you feel about this trip so far? It was profound, Julie. Talking to her was one of the most profound pieces. This is the most multicultural, diverse school district in the state of Iowa. Right. They are negotiating so many different children, cultures, backgrounds every day, and they love it. They're not complaining one tiny bit. It's the families that are going to get shortchanged when eventually the public school district gets put out of business because all the money is going to be transferred to private schools where people People can escape the diversity. And I loved what she said about the value of diversity and how if a child is being, what was the word she used? Dis- disaffected. She talked about this period when children were just disaffected during the COVID crisis and then came back to school and they were acting out and acting like much younger children. And she said that it is important for other children to see what happens in some cases and to be able to empathize and make connections and understand that's normal and natural response to some situations. And I know we're going to talk about immigration in a future episode, but you take a look at a town like Storm Lake that has embraced and welcomed immigration and diversity. Storm Lake is thriving as a result. When we drive through some other towns in Iowa that aren't as prosperous, there's a reason. And I think you've got to hats off to Storm Lake. Absolutely. They're diverse populations. And 
those young Latino students who came and spoke when we were listening to some legislators come in and interact with parents, it was so touching to see these students. They're just thriving. They're doing so well there. I had a conversation with one of them that I was seated next to and just asking what she saw her future. She said, well, I'm looking at law schools. And I thought, all right. Weren't you suggesting she get into podcasting too or something? I was suggesting she think about running for office, but I wasn't expecting law school. Sometimes they do go hand in hand. So what does that show you? This school district is doing such a great job of educating them, making them feel welcome and whole. I'm glad we're doing this, and I would hope that if people listening to this podcast find it valuable and you learn something, please share it with somebody else. This is the way we are going to get these stories out. And I think it's important. Absolutely is. Thank you for listening. And here's to more educators. State Senator Pam Yoakum talks to us about her view of issues related to the voucher bill. And then we also bring in educators from the greater Des Moines area. This is going to take money away from the public schools. We already have a $144 million deficit in special education in Iowa. And that means that the private school, public schools have to increase our property taxes to make up that difference when we don't fully subsidize it because it is a federal law. You will educate these children from age three until they are 21 years of age. Our state truly, in their wisdom back in the 70s, actually went much further than that and said, okay, we love the fact that the federal government is saying that and will help us pay for it, but we're going to do birth to three. Because we know that if the sooner we can buy a child with special needs and start working with them to get as caught up as they possibly can, because those first five years, they knew already then that it was critical. And even more so if a child has any kind of learning disability or any kind of disability. So the state picked up birth to three. All on our own. Here's Joy Lindquist. That amount of tax dollars should not go to private schools. And we're talking $7,600 per student per year. Right. When we don't have enough money to fund what we're already trying to accomplish. I'm just so concerned about public school funding and ensuring that we have equitable access to high-level education for all students. And um, yeah, not surprised. I'm just so disappointed. Here's Barb Adams, who's principal of Findlay Elementary. I think for me, the issue is more than a policy, but a fundamental concern about public tax dollars. In education, our whole purpose is to develop informed citizens. Citizens that will be engaged and make good decisions, and we start at the elementary level. To use public tax dollars for private education with no oversight, that's the part that concerns me. Just because I'm not going to drive over a bridge in southwestern Iowa doesn't mean that I don't want to use my tax dollars for that new bridge. It just goes against what we're trying to teach our students from very early ages about what this country is founded on, what our laws and our branches of government. I'm thinking very young in the 
fourth grade year, we start that. So that's where I'm coming from. Right now, Joy and Sandra, I'm sure you're more steeped in this than I am, but students can choose then to attend public schools for whatever they want to attend. Do they want to take a Russian class down the street because it's not offered at their school? We've had students come to our school before who have participated in orchestra, or maybe they want to join our drama club and be in our musical. But no funding is following them. So that the funding issue and the and what is democracy is what bothers me the most. Thank you, Principal Adams. And now we're going to another conversation with State Senator Pam Yocum. I think that at least in some of the smaller school districts, we're going to see accelerated consolidation of those school districts, which means children will be riding buses much longer to get to and from school. And then we also have 41 counties in the state that they don't have a private school. They have no other option. And now the school is getting less money. It means that some of those schools in the rural areas, I don't know when, but they're going to have a really hard time keeping their doors open when we aren't even giving them enough money to keep up with the rate of inflation. And right now, the last time I checked, there were over a thousand openings for teachers in our state. So the fact that the last few years, some of the uh, leaders in our state, politicians, have been so negative toward teachers, the sinister agenda stuff, the absolute disrespect toward them that you find more and more people deciding to retire early or not going into the profession at all at a time when we need some of the best and brightest to be going into getting a degree in education and they're not doing it. The other thing is that the beginning salary for teachers in the state is only about 35000 a year. Mm-hmm. And they might top out at 65000 maybe seventy after a 35-year career in educating children. Now, they didn't get into it just to make a lot of money. Jobs out there to attract the best and brightest who want to teach. I know that some of us, this reminds me too much of when Governor Branson and then Lieutenant Governor Reynolds privatized Medicaid. Mm-hmm. You starve a system. People start complaining, and all of a sudden, that justifies, let's just privatize the whole system. And I can tell you that our seniors and our adults and children with a disability, the ones who have truly suffered and were shortchanged on privatization of Medicaid, and still are, they are not getting the services. I still have providers that are not getting paid timely. It might take them 90 days to get paid. Am I... Remembering correctly that somehow the federal government, because of the ADA, got involved in this. Am I remembering? Yeah, it is. The other piece that that we are all concerned about and whether or not a family with a child with a disability would have standing if they would try to enroll a child in a private school and they would reject them. If we would actually then have standing in a court of law to actually pursue it and see if disabilities rights attorneys and others would help represent those families. I had publicly had said to some people, if Sarah was still here and of school age, I would actually try to do that. I would, to get standing to force the courts to look at this and see where they come down or on whether or not private schools rejecting a child based on a disability would be in violation of any kind of ADA or any other federal law. Now, on the other end of the spectrum of education are the talented and gifted, and we don't do enough for those children either. We truly do not. 
And so I can't help but think of how many children are incredibly bright and are getting so bored with school because we are not challenging them enough because we aren't investing the dollars in the public school system to actually do that kind of work. So that just makes my heart sad. What about the constitutional issues involved in the separation of church and state? The fact that the state is giving so much money to religious schools to educate children that fly in the face of that. And is there a lawsuit there waiting to happen or many? There could be. Some states have done that and they've been successful in some states and some states they've tried it and they were not. I think it depends a great deal on the Supreme Court, the makeup of the Supreme Court in each state. But the other issue is that an educational savings account is not giving the money directly to the school. The account is in the child's name Mm. and the parent makes the decision on using that money to go where they want to go. And I think that's how they're trying to get around that separation of church and state is that they're calling it educational savings account that is controlled by the family, not the school. That's very sneaky. One thing I heard is if the private school that a family decides to transfer their kid to by even September, October, decides to kick that kid out because he or she is not cutting it, then the money will still stay with the private school, though, even though it's supposed to go with the student, it will stay with the school because it will already have been paid to that private school. So then it goes back to public school. The public school is left without the funding to pay for that student. Yep. Yep. And I have heard parents talk about that, especially parents who've had child with a disability, where the child may have had a mild disability or originally accepted in a private school. And then the private school said, we can't do this. We can't handle this. And you're going to have to take them to the public school system. So in the middle of the school year, they were transferring that child to a public school. And that was happening here in Dubuque even. So it has happened. And I suspect it will happen in greater numbers as they accept them. Now I'm just speculating. Truly speculation. I probably shouldn't be doing this. But my my gut tells me that if a lot of parents decide to try and enroll the child in a private school, the next thing we're going to hear is, well, we don't have enough classroom space. Now you want some of that saved money mm. in order to take care of our capital expenses. I hope I'm wrong, but I just see some of this coming at us in the future on, on what we're going to do with capital expenditures. So the issues of what is constitutional and what is financially equitable sprang up in multiple conversations. And here we're back to our conversation with Joy Linquist and the other educators. Most of our private schools in the state of Iowa are religious educational facilities. Other states that have these voucher programs, they have private schools that are not religiously affiliated. However, most of ours are. I also know, first off, really, when we're saying private school money, it's going to religious education, Which right? Which is unconstitutional, Which right? is unconstitutional. I, I was a government teacher. I'm a Christian. I support Christian educators. I support Christianity. What I don't support is our public tax dollars funding the religious education. That's the reason why they're private. What I'd like to also say is that I have a family of educators, too. I grew up in the public schools. My family grew up in the public schools. In fact, I grew up in Des Moines public schools. I have a family member who is a teacher at the Catholic schools. They have students who have IEPs, but the service that they're providing for them Without a special education teacher, they have to do a reverse consult, get that teacher from Des Moines Public Schools to help and support them. 
There's not instructional coaches. There's not the level of support. What I'm saying is that we don't have enough support and money to then provide that also for every private school in the state of Iowa. Imagine how you mentioned, Barb, how many more schools might, charter schools might come about. Instead of having this hidden agenda of failing public schools, which isn't the case, our students are doing well. They have great teachers. We have a strong educational program. Instead of that, we're going to then spread out all the resources and have multiple schools that cannot meet the needs of students. We just cannot, as Iowans, as Americans, we cannot fund private schools with public tax dollars. We just can't. And this is, it's so concerning. Thankfully, our ancestors realized long ago that in order for America to be successful and move forward, we needed to educate everyone, especially our children. And so we started that public school system. And I look back to see why Dubuque started its public school system. It was the 1800s, late 1800s, that we actually started public education here. Until the probably the last maybe seven or eight years, regardless of the political party that ran the legislature, educating our children was the number one priority. It was. We knew that of all the other important things state government had to do, the most important thing was to educate our children. And so we would invest adequate dollars and make sure that we were keeping up with inflation and all those other things so that the schools could do that. I remember it was back when Sarah was probably maybe seven years old. They discontinued the summer program for children with disabilities. Because they just didn't think it was worth the money anymore. And I fought them so hard on that. And they said, well, we'll let your daughter go. I said, that's not why I'm doing this. Tell us a little bit about what special education might look like in a public school that students are entitled to and get that private schools evidently don't want to have to provide. With Sarah, she had, she was considered severe, severe intellectual disability. So she had a lot more one-on-one where her class size was much smaller. Once we integrated the kids into the regular school system, there would be peer heart helpers that would come into the classroom and help the teachers. There was a connection with all the other children in the school system to get to know kiddos with disabilities that you didn't need to be afraid of them because they may have walked different, behaved a little different. They appreciated them. They said, I don't have to be afraid of this child. It's a peer and I like working with them. So that was a good thing for everybody. For the children who are more mild to moderate with their disability, they have a paraprofessional in the classroom to help the teacher. And that is because that child, if they just get a little extra help with reading or math or whatever it is they struggle with, they can usually catch up and do pretty well. Can you demystify something for me? At a legislative hearing recently, some legislators referring to pornography in elementary schools. There are people who believe that there's pornography in elementary schools. Can you address that? Can you answer that? We have a very thorough system about recommending library books and curriculum. We have a policy about that. We have a librarian in our school who I know for a fact she has read every single book in that library. 
Is um, there anything sexually explicit? I would say that in elementary school, that's nothing I've come across. I've had more issues with people that donate books to the schools and have not had the understanding of what we should and should not put in front of students. For instance, anything of a religious nature, we don't have in our school library. There is a bill coming up that is referred to lightly as the Don't Say Gay Bill. It prohibits discussion about LGBTQ issues in classes and in school generally. Also has to do with literature, I guess, the prohibition of literature. How much discussion is there currently? And I'll ask you again first, Barb, because you're in elementary school. How much discussion is there about those issues and how much does there need to be? It depends on what you consider is developmentally appropriate. We start in kindergarten. In kindergarten, right now, students are going to be attending the Civic Center. It's okay to be different, or it's great to be different, or something of that title. And they all draw an, um, a portrait, a self-portrait, talk about their characteristics, what makes them unique, we talk about families. Our students come from all sorts of families and families that are intergenerational, families that are more than a family that we consider dad, mom, brother, sister, and half, I guess. Is it two and a half children? <laughs> I don't know how that works, but that's how we start in elementary school, to be proud of who you are, to accept who you are, to develop your strengths, and to learn to appreciate everyone else. How about the rest of you? How much exposure do kids have at school to either sexually explicit material or LGBTQ material? I'm both a high school language arts teacher, and I teach a class called Gender, Race, and Culture in Literature. And I'm also the faculty advisor for GSA at my school. So I can definitely assert that I teach nothing that is sexually explicit. However, I attempt to expose students to a lot of different voices and perspectives. I'm a, just a very firm believer that one story has merit and value. And we learn so much by learning the stories of others. So... In my gender, race, and culture class, they read authors of multiple perspectives, but definitely non-binary, trans, LGBTQ writers, and poets. What would you like that somebody who is listening to this, who may think that teachers are promoting different lifestyles, what would you like them to know about what the reality is of what you're doing and what you're teaching? I would say... It is not easy to be an LGBTQ kid anywhere, maybe possibly especially in Iowa. And it isn't something that kids choose because no one would choose something that difficult. None of us would. My goal is always I want my students to feel safe and valued, and I want them to know that their stories are important and that they are loved for who they are, not for what someone thinks they should be. 
The rhetoric that we are hearing from the legislators who support this bill is that you all are encouraging them to be gay or to be trans. Would you like to speak to that, Joy? Yeah, that's just laughable. What we're encouraging is for students to be themselves. And public schools fundamentally are open. Our doors are wide open for any student. And that's not the case in private schools. And if we talk about funding and vouchers and back to that, we will keep our doors open for every student in the public school setting. What vouchers are going to do is they're going to decrease the funding that we have and further marginalize students, particularly students of color, also students with lower socioeconomic status, marginalize the don't say gay bill would marginalize our LGBTQ students. One other question. Some women I knew who were connected to libraries, local Iowa libraries, at one of the committee meetings to try to voice their concerns about the bill on the books that had to be banned from libraries. And they were not allowed in. The door was closed and it was only a supportive group of people supporting the bill who were allowed inside. Isn't that in violation of the open meetings law? Absolutely. It what is. They do. Who could they, how could they grieve this? They can file a complaint with the ethics committee. We do, oh. and I'm on it. No, but you can file, you can file an, a complaint online. Okay. There's actually ethics complaint forms online. They go to the secretary of the Senate. Then he in turn will get a hold of all the people that serve on the ethics committee. There's six of us. It's right. so equal, three Democrats, three Republicans to see if we want to hold a meeting. And I will always say, well, of course, if there's someone, the citizen has a complaint. We should hold a hearing. Let them have their, their day. They need to come in and talk to us. Um, and so that's what, that's how it starts. Excellent. That's one little thing that people can do. What are some others? Yeah. Yeah. But they should never have been shut out because they had a different point of view. Excellent. That is not democracy. So if that happens again in the future, what should one do in that situation? If they go to the Capitol and they find a hearing that they want to participate in, but they're not allowed in, what should they do in that moment instead of after the fact? Right. The best I can tell you is to try and get a hold of one of us that maybe is not on that subcommittee, but can certainly intervene in some way and say, wait a minute, because another legislator could step in and say, these people have the right to be heard as well. They, they would be hard pressed to turn another legislator down. But that was wrong, truly wrong. That's why. This whole book banning is mm-hmm. really troublesome. I remember when I was in high school, they told us we couldn't read Lady Chatterley's Lover. Then what they told us that. <laughs> Everybody, right? I found that on my parents' yeah. bookshelf. I didn't have to go to school for it. <laughs> what absolutely blows my mind is, do they not realize what is available on the Internet to these kids 24-7? That- Yeah. That's what makes me think it's political, that they're just using this to skip the wedge wedge issue. Do you think that Kim Reynolds' public relations strategy in which she demonizes schools as if they're taking away parental rights by teaching them civics and civil rights and civil liberties and history that may not be flattering to their forefathers. Do you think that that's missing the mark? Do you think the vast majority of Iowans agree with her? We'll hear that and say, oh, yes, it's, yeah, our mothers should have all the rights to decide what gets taught in schools. And by the way, do home, homeschooling moms 
get this money too? Uh, not yet, although we think that will be the next step. Mm. We do. So what I'm hearing from most parents is that they disagree with, with what the governor is saying. Now, there is a very vocal group that is agreeing with that, and that's who we hear. But the majority of people truly believe that in a very diverse society, they want their children to know our history and they want to know the truth. And they don't think that kids are going to be afraid to hear it. And I also trust our education system and our teachers well enough to know that they're going to use an age-appropriate approach to how they present that information to children. They are not going to use stuff that's going to scare a child into thinking somehow we have done something terrible in this day and age. Although I must admit, I think we all do, that that the isms are pretty much alive and well in our society yet. And they will never go away until we are educated and learn the lessons of history, ever. What are you hearing from your constituents? What are some of the stories people are bringing to you? Most of them are just flabbergasted by where the state is headed right now. Oh, and you, you, the two of you hit the nail on the head when you said, what the hell happened to Iowa? Because that's what people are saying to me. What's going on? I don't, I don't understand the state anymore. It's not the state I love. It's changed so much. What happened to us? So that's mostly what I'm hearing. Not specific little stories as much as that general kind of concept. They don't get it. And they're very worried. I'm hearing younger families talk about that they're beginning to look elsewhere for jobs, especially if the children are still in the school system. They'll say, I don't think Iowa believes in educating our children anymore. Hmm. And they want to move. What we're hearing from these educators is that education isn't just about the fundamentals. They're also really committed to nurturing each student as they grow. Here's Joy Linquist again. Students will not be able to be themselves. And that's the purpose. That's one of the major purposes that we have as educators is to help our students be who they are and to become the best version of themselves, not to pretend that they're someone else. Please don't let us go back decades and decades and decades. We have to move forward. And I just am appalled that this is even a conversation that we have to have right now. What do you think the underlying agenda is? Is it really, do you think, as these lawmakers are claiming, is it because parents are so upset about having their students be exposed to things that they didn't give permission for them to be exposed to? Or is that just a ruse for some other reason? These are Barb Adams' thoughts. I don't know, but I've, I've heard that this is not something that the citizens of Iowa want. I can't back that up with any data, but I've heard that, and I wonder... There has been a poll actually done. The Des Moines Register did one, and a majority of Iowans did not support this. And look at all the Iowans that are products of public schools. So what concerns me is if you open this up for one particular faith, and that particular faith is going to have a private school with no oversight and no requirements for state testing or supporting students that have special needs and are served by an IEP or students who are learn English. If, if that's the case, then 
We must agree to everything, right? We must agree to somebody who wants to open up a school in maybe a mindset that we would all find appalling, a school that's celebrating Satanism or Mm. a school that's celebrating some sort of degradation to a part of our population. That is what worries me, is that you can't just open the door a crack. If we're going to say that this is good for some, then we need to say this is good for all. Sandra Abbott has some thoughts about what happens when you take funding away from public schools. If you take millions of dollars away from a budget, the quality diminishes. Yeah, but if your agenda is that public schools are failing, and then you remove supports and funding for the public schools, then doesn't your agenda come true? So you asked earlier, is there a hidden agenda? Anybody can figure that one out. To make them fail. Sure. You can say, see, told you so. Our public schools are failing. Without telling the whole story of all of the, like Sandra said, all of the additional supports and community supports that we are required to provide in our schools so that students can be successful. A lot of the students who you teach now probably wouldn't be accepted in a private school, right? Because they're harder considered, harder to educate in some ways, right? So what would happen? What do you see happening to them? They would be the only ones left behind in the school system. What would that do overall to the school system and to them? I certainly think if we look at the way special education has changed and evolved over the years, that it used to be students with IEPs that would qualify for special education services tucked in their own room and put tucked away. You didn't see them and think about these students. And now um, the approach and the philosophy is very much the least restrictive environment. So we have students with IEPs in regular ed classrooms. That is done because research shows that is a better environment for students and a better way for them to learn because students learn as much or more, really, from their peers than they do from their teachers. So taking away the regular ed students would be a detriment to special ed students. And then especially if you think about what that does, the funding. If you look at all of the stresses on teachers right now and the political arena without even thinking about what has happened with a pandemic and what has happened in our societal issues and how we are treating people nowadays and what's happening in social media, teachers are doing, in some cases, not so well. So Sandra, take us into your classroom. A little background on you. You started your career in Southern Iowa as a teacher in the language arts field. You've also worked in a private Catholic school. You worked in the West Des Moines schools. Currently, you're working in an alternative high school. What is it like in your classroom, and what would you like a legislator to know about what these kids are going through? I think I'd first like to talk about, and I'd like legislators to know how much my students are going through, how much much they bring with them every day. There's a sign that hangs right next to my desk that says, you don't know what it took for me to get here today. I read this every day and remember this because what students today are carrying is so much heavier than 
ever before. Teaching in the alternative school setting, that is even more true. My students are expected, or a lot of them are expected to have jobs to contribute to their family's income. I have students who are homeless or insecure, housing insecure. We have a food pantry in the building and a shower for students who don't get these fundamental needs at home. I always sort of laugh at this idea that I'm trying to indoctrinate my students because, my goodness, I just am so happy when they show up and pay attention and turn some homework in. I don't, indoctrinating is not on my plate at that point and not in my agenda. There's a real big piece of me that asks, why aren't I playing Mahjong or on the beach or on the beach or what? I think both of us have just felt like we have to do something. And I'm hoping that's happening all around the state, that people are just going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there going to be a backlash? I think so. I do. I think that the governor and some of the issues that they have pushed now in the last few weeks have gone much further than most people are willing to accept. Whether or not we can continue to remind people of where we're at, but I think they're going to see it. I don't even know if we have to keep reminding them as much as they're going to just start living it. I'm hoping that is going to be enough that they're going to go to the ballot box and say, we need a correction. We've got too far. I think both parties have done that. The left and the right have pushed, sometimes have gone too far to either end and then voters say, whoa, Come on back here. Next, you'll hear from Carla Holman, owner of the Junkyard Cafe in Jefferson. She'll be followed by a couple of women we met at the Family Table restaurant in Pocahontas. They did prefer not to give us their names. So what do you think about the governor's recent law that she signed about allowing students from public schools to transfer to private schools with state funding? Do you think the voucher plan is called a universal voucher plan? Mm. Do you use state funding to do that? I don't know that I agree with that. You know, if I chose to have Autumn in a private school, that should be on me, out of my pocket. You know, not out of the state's pocket, not for a private school. What the governor might say to that is that's exactly why we're allowing parents the choice to put them in private schools and let the private school money, state money, go with them to the tune of $7,600 a year. If that were an option for you to send your child to, let's say, a Christian school here with that kind of money, would you do it? No. The bullying don't change. Does it matter if you, what religion you are or what school you're in, that that topic does not change. I guess it would depend on how they handle it, but at the end of the day, I think children need to be in public schools. You know, I just this what I fully believe in, but I think putting them in a, in a private school, as, as such as a Christian school, would not change. Especially, let's go to the LGBTQ community. Okay, my daughter is gay. Mm-hmm. Let's put her in a Christian school and see what happens. You know that the governor made a very big deal about one community school district in Linmar 
having allowed, granted permission for transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice or to go by the pronouns of their choice. She said, some parents don't like it. It's not fair to them. And that's why we have to have this alternative. What would your response to that be? If you would ask me that a couple of years ago, my response would have been gender to gender bathroom. My response today um, is a 160, 180-degree flip. I think that you can go by who you believe you are, and you have every right to believe in that. And I'll tell you, my 16-year-old influenced that. My whole mindset's different on all of it. Say more about that. Tell us about your process, what you went through as a mom. Oh, as a mom, you know, I have, I have uh, between me and my husband, we have 10 children. Wow. Okay. So um, my four oldest, you know, they're all heterosexual. Um, Autumn is 16. She came out in 2020. So she is 13. Um, she was afraid to tell me. I've never, some of my best friends, hey guys, I have none against any of that. But when she told me, I said, well, that's your choice. That's your choice in your life. So then when we got to the pronouns, I had a harder time saying, okay, how am I going to call them? They and them. And, you know, so we did have an argument, you know, like mom, what if somebody came in the house and they identified as they and them? What are you going to call them? I said, she or he. And we, I mean, it was probably a weak process to, for her to say, look, you know, everybody has to identify and everybody has a right to make me see her point of view to say, you're right. Because I can identify any way I want and nobody's going to say nothing to me. So why do I have the right to do it to them? So I have totally adapted to that. My granddaughter is bisexual and she's dated a they, them. And, you know, I, so my whole... Yeah, 56 years old, my whole train of thought's been changed. So, a couple of um, other issues that the governor has referenced in this decision to privatize public education, and one is she doesn't want students learning critical race theory because she thinks that, in other words, the legacy of slavery in America, because she thinks that will make white people feel guilty. Uh, Do you think that that's a valid complaint? Well, I think it should be taught. I think that we it, it absolutely needs to be heard. Um, you can't bury something like that under the rug. Now, we head over to the Family Table Restaurant in Pocahontas, where they're talking about the separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. That's what we all grew up on. That was a fact. That is America. I don't think they should get the money. And on top of it, it's giving money to people that already have money. And it's taking money from the public schools that really need it. They they need associates in schools terribly. They don't pay them enough money to get people to do it. I mean, I think they should get at least $15 an hour because the teachers can't teach without associates because there are a lot of kids that aren't like the kids when we went to school where we really pretty much behaved or when we got home, deep trouble. And I just I just think that's just different. It was just different times. I'm not saying anything's bad with the kids. It's just different. But no, I, I 
totally against. Did your kids go through public school? Mine went to Catholic school uh, in elementary, but at that time it was $50 a kid. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. anything. And of course, and your kids went to yeah. the Catholic school. Um, then at, uh, after sixth grade, then they went to the public, public school. school. One of the things that I'm particularly concerned about, and I suspect you are too, is as the voucher system takes hold, it's clear that private schools don't have to abide by any of the inclusion mandates well, that public schools do. What does that mean for your family? Uh, well, I, I have a 10-year-old great-grandson that I am his legal guardian. He lives with me. He goes to school. I mean, they're, they're very good, the public school. But I, I think that takes funding that could have went to hire more associates. So he's a one-to-one. But does that's he have, okay. Does he have special needs? What are they? Well, he's uh, he, he's on an IQ waiver. And he has cyber palsy. And so under this new law... Private schools, they could say no to him. They could say he'd be too difficult. They would for them. say well, no. Yeah, they, they would say no. Absolutely say no. Yeah, because they would have to hire a full-time associate. So it's it, not one-on-one like it's supposed to. Be. It is, I think, most of the time. Like they went over to school. They went from for the elementary to the high school for worth a hundred days at school, and uh, they went over there for ice cream. And so his associate, but well, they have a. A has a stroller wheelchair that state that's at the school, so they use that because cross it's like probably two blocks yeah. to get to it across highways. You've seen the elementary, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just works better to have him. He can walk, but it's slow. Yeah. So of course he was one to one in that situation and eating the ice cream, but in the classroom, I just asked him. He's one-to-one. One. Yes, yes. And then the speech therapist said, but when he's in my room, there may be three other children, and I'm just in here with the four, which I understand. That's okay. But but he is one-to-one. One. They don't send him off to go back to another classroom. There is. So he is. But I think, I guess, I understand that actually, tech, technically, he should have one person to in. So as his guardian, if he is barred from going to private school on this taxpayer-funded system that is being implemented, you as a taxpayer are paying for something you cannot have access to. How does that make you feel? Well, I think it's total. I think it's wrong. I think it's very wrong. What do you think about this new ban on teaching critical race theory and the history what of slavery because well, impairment. we had slavery yeah. yeah but we shouldn't feel guilty about it apparently well we don't I don't feel I mean I don't it was well, me. if you take this course is what the legislators and the governor are saying then you might as a white person feel guilty and we should not make white people feel guilty but about they're talking about they're talking about a, a higher education not not Right, but even that. in schools, there's a yeah. debate. The, the governor insists that it's being taught in Iowa schools. She does love it, Mike. Why has it been taught all these years? The same with some books that have been on shelves for generations. Now are all bad. Mm. What what happened? What well, ha- 
That's what. That's why we're doing this. What the hell happened? What happened? Yeah. Really? What? Yeah. Well, it's you know, the Republican Party. I voted. I have voted Republican. I will not, from here on out, vote for Republican ever again, because they just went wacko. In a passionate rebuke last week to state lawmakers' flood of anti-public school legislation, Des Moines School Board President Terry Caldwell-Johnson had this message. Leave our public schools alone. We are doing just fine. We don't need your interventions around curriculum, what we teach, how we teach, who we teach. Des Moines Public Schools has been in existence for 116 years, and we're doing pretty darn well. The frustration and weariness are a palpable response to the many ways in which Governor Kim Reynolds and her cadre of obedient Republican allies in the state legislature are tampering with education in Iowa, most notably with the law and funding to privatize it. They elevate parental rights to the point where schools should need permission to introduce any topic not discussed at home. South Africa's history of apartheid? The women's rights movement? The health benefits of vegetarianism, must these all be vetted at home first? But lately, those now dictating the norms have found their most potent target in gender identity. Because hatred and fear of what you don't understand are usually reliable drivers of division and votes. Not only does a succession of bills attempt to ban school books on transgender identities, and force schools to tell parents if their child is identifying with another gender. But a new bill goes so far as to regulate school employees' use of student nicknames. Call Alexandra Alex in class, or Samantha Sam, or Daniel Danny, spelled D-A-N-I, that is, and a teacher could be held to account if they hadn't obtained prior written parental consent for nicknames associated with the other sex. And yet these lawmakers who claim to want to protect children sit silent in the face of growing school bullying, especially of those who don't fit a preconceived notion of what a boy or girl should be. Republican legislators are also trying to remove gender identity as a protected category in Iowa's civil rights law, so bullying on those grounds wouldn't be a problem. The CDC says 22% of LGBTQ teenagers attempted suicide in the past year. Any Iowa lawmaker generally concerned with child safety wouldn't be trying to weaken the laws on child labor to shield businesses from liability if a teen worker gets injured or dies. They'd be working to curb young people's access to guns and writing tougher environmental pollution laws so Iowa's children can grow up healthy. But just the opposite. They'd rather do handstands over nicknames. What can we do? What in the world can we as individuals do? First of all, do call your legislator. Find out who he or she is and make contact with them. Tell them your own personal experiences. Be polite, be firm, be authentic. If that representative does not represent your views, 
find out when the next election is, who might be running, and if there isn't a candidate, think about running yourself. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, find somebody that you can support and work wholeheartedly for and raise money for and register voters for and create enthusiasm for. Because that's what it takes. Elections have consequences. There are other things we can do on an individual basis. If you go to the dentist or the doctor and Fox News is on, ask politely to change the channel. There were revelations in a lawsuit against Fox News, Fox News, that put in plain language the lies that Fox News hosts, Fox Entertainment hosts, are spewing on a daily basis, and then when the doors are closed, they laugh and say it was just bullshit. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. So if you're in a place where Fox News is on the television set, ask them politely to change the channel. It's one thing we can do. If you're listening to a radio station that is spreading lies and misinformation and homophobia, and an ad comes on for a restaurant that you like, go to that restaurant and tell them that you don't want them advertising on that kind of garbage. These are all things we can do as individuals. You'll probably think of other things. Maybe we should start a little movement. What can we do? What can we do? Write us. We'd like to thank Tina Haas-Findley, Thomas Tormey, and our wonderful sound engineers, James Hamilton and Brian Dodson. We'd like to thank all of our wonderful guests for their insights and their passion for children and education. This is Julie Gamick and Reka Basu, just a couple of liberty-loving moms coming to you via a podcast. Just look around at where we've been. The more we lose, the less we win. Come on and make me smile again. Oh, I, oh, I.